Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk to Susan Thornton. Thornton was the Acting Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs until she retired in July 2018, after nearly three decades in the diplomatic service. She guided policy toward China and East Asia at a tumultuous time in U.S. foreign policy under the first year and a half of the Trump administration. With increased tensions on the Korean Peninsula, a more assertive China in the South China Sea, and new trade friction with friends and allies alike. In our discussion, Thornton talks about balancing these different U.S. foreign policy objectives in the region and with China. Here's Secretary of State Rex Tillerson speaking at the United Nations Security Council in April 2017, highlighting the real dangers of North Korea's provocative weapons tests. With each successive detonation and missile test, North Korea pushes Northeast Asia and the world closer to instability and broader conflict. The threat of a North Korean nuclear attack on Seoul or Tokyo is real. And it is likely only a matter of time before North Korea develops the capability to strike the U.S. mainland. Indeed, the DPRK has repeatedly claimed it plans to conduct such a strike. Given that rhetoric, the United States cannot idly stand by nor can other members of this council who are within striking distance of North Korean missiles. Those, in some ways, are the traditional foreign policy challenges facing any senior official. But in addition, the Trump administration called longstanding alliances and relationships into question, did not have many sub-cabinet officials in place, and had a chaotic decision-making style. Three days after the administration came into office in January 2017, the United States withdrew from the 12-nation Trans-Pacific Partnership, quickly insisted on renegotiating a trade agreement with South Korea, and pushed allies for greater burden-sharing on defense spending. Susan Thornton talks with us about being in the middle of it all, addressing Chinese cyber hacking, setting up the summit between the U.S. and Chinese presidents in Florida, and she shares how career officials handle political transitions. At the end of our conversation, she is philosophical about personal attacks against her at the end of her time in government. We were the first ones, I think, to get a consulate open in Chengdu. And then um, after that, the Chinese government decided that it wanted to promote Chongqing, uh, Chengdu's kind of rival sister city there in the southwest, as um, a destination for more government and commerce and business. Uh, made it a a major, sort of the fourth major national city, and so sent a lot of the other consulates to open down in Chongqing. So we were a bit lonely for diplomatic colleagues for a while. But we covered Yunnan province, which is all along along the border with Laos um, and uh, Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, we did not cover, you know, down to the southeast where the border with Vietnam is, but we covered Tibet. Um, Guizhou province and uh, Sichuan, of course, and I think that was about it. And when you went to Tibet that first time, right after dropping your your bags and family off, um, you'd been in post-Soviet 
States. You'd been in places all around the world. How, what struck you about going to Tibet in 2001? Well, there are a couple of things about covering that portfolio. Of course, in the 90s, the U.S.-China relationship was very focused on the human rights issues. Uh, I think we forget that now because the the sort of sea change in the kind of issues that we've been focusing on um, has sort of been forgotten. But Just to interject there, sure. uh, I was re-listening to the preparation for um, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton's trip to China in 1998, and Secretary Albright was giving a briefing at the National Press Club as a preview for the trip. And all of the questions from the press were on human rights, and most of her remarks were on human rights. So just to, to, to back up what you're saying, at that time in the, in the uh, 90s, that there was just an incredible focus on that aspect of the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, and it's no accident, I think, when we, you know, we it's really important when you're thinking about U.S.-China relationships to put yourself back in the context. So after Henry Kissinger, of course, went to China in the early 70s, and after we re-cemented our relationship and reopened diplomatic relations in 79, the relationship was really focused on this kind of very practical, strategic cooperation countering Soviet aggression. And no one really questioned the wisdom of that because we had such a clear and overriding priority in that, you know, in that joint endeavor. But then after, of course, Tiananmen Square incident massacre happened in 89, it kind and and the collapse of the Soviet Union sort of knocked all of the rationale and footing out from under the relationship. And I think we weren't really focused on it. We struggled to come up with, you know, how to how to put this back on solid footing. George H.W. Bush sending Brent Scrocoft in a couple of times to try to put things back on track, um, you know, keep some kind of foundation or, or footing for the relationship. But it was not easy, I think, for us to um, get over the Tiananmen massacre and to move on to other uh, important, practical, constructive issues that we eventually ended up, I think, doing in the late 2000s. But so when I arrived in Tibet, to bring it back to that, um, you know, we were still operating in the shadow of that kind of uh, very much human rights being at the center of the relationship. And and the uh, Tibetan community was very influential in the corridors of Washington and the Congress and elsewhere. And um, you know, it was a powerful voice, and so. And then you were the Tibet officer. For yeah, all I was a, at the consulate. Who I was, was a political economic officer, but that was you know one might be it was not just the Tibetan community in the Tibet Autonomous Republic (TAR), but Tibetan communities elsewhere in um, in the region. Yunnan, Sichuan had big big communities as well. Qinghai as well. So. Um, you know, it was important to try to understand what was going on because most of what we were hearing about um, Tibet was coming from the exile community and not from actually inside the country. So that was, um, you know, a very important thing that I felt I could do is sort of report on what's actually happening on the ground, what people inside are actually saying and what their concerns are and, and what their what progress, if any, they're making and what they think that the United States should be doing about it. So, uh, And before we kind of move on, just to be clear, the exile community is the Tibetans who are not in Tibet proper. They're right. in India, Various on the other, other side places. of the border. Right? Yeah, and most in, in India. United States. Right. So very, as you say, influential in setting policy and reporting on what was happening. Right. 
Um, let's move to your time back here in Washington as the deputy of the China desk, which is, mm. I think, when I first met you. Mm -hmm. um, could you just describe what the job is of the deputy director of the China desk? And then I wanted to ask you about some of the policy considerations. Well, um, State Department is basically run by the directors of the offices um, in various bureaus. And um, my director, when I arrived at the desk, was John Norris, a veteran Foreign Service officer, been working on China since the 1980s. Um, and my job as the deputy was to make sure that the office was uh, running effectively to coordinate across different agencies on our policies. Um, and to try to make sure that the State Department's China policy operation was basically firing on all cylinders and, and doing what it was supposed to do to serve the secretary and the interagency. Um, at the time I was there, John Norris and I used to joke that the China desk was the same size in 2007 that it was in 1987 when he had first been there. We didn't have any more staff than we had had. Um, and so one of the things that we were working on was continuing to fill in and structure the office to fit with the more modern U.S.-China relationship. And meanwhile, our footprint in China had exploded during that time. Right. So the number of officers who were actually serving in Beijing or Chengdu or Shanghai had grown a lot. And one of the main jobs for the deputy director is to work on that personnel assignment. And those that assignment work had really right. increased a lot. And as you say, the number of people actually working on the China desk um, yeah, didn't increase since I was there uh, a couple of years before then. It, yeah. it was it was pretty pretty low. So it's also interesting in the in the on the issue of sort of the context of U.S. China relations under George W. Bush. Uh, I came back at um, at the end of his uh, admin. You know, I, I was there across the two admin for the administration transition. Um, you know, we had really been focused on uh, counterterrorism for most of his tenure. And so the U.S.-China relationship was very often viewed through that lens and, um, you know, became uh, a kind of a lower priority in comparison, obviously. And um, then, you know, we had the great financial crisis of 2008-2009 that coincided with the transition from George W. Bush to, um, to President Obama. Uh, and that um, also kind of consumed all of our energy and focus and priority. And so when people talk about, and I know um, there's been many people that have tried to sort of bring us back to Asia, starting even with Condoleezza Rice and then moving through the Obama administration with the so-called pivot and then the rebalance. And now we have the Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think what you see through all of that is this realization on the part of the you know people who work on foreign policy that we're really not focusing in the way we should on this very important region and it's a great frustration I'm sure to many Asianists um, and I think a lot of other people don't really appreciate it. Different people have written about you know do you work on Asia from the kind of outside in or the inside out that is do you uh, build a coalition of littoral states of um, countries like Japan, Korea and try to focus U.S. energies there, or do you work on the kind of central mainland of working with China? Is that the main focus? During your time, or 
in, in at, at Maine State. How did you see that kind of balance play out again? You, you were not serving on the Japan desk, so that that obviously colors some of your interpretation. But how did you how do you see that balance of what's the best way to get U.S. engaged in Asia? in a way that uh, benefits the region and the United States. Yeah, well, you, you absolutely got to do both. Um, you know, working with China is extremely frustrating, time-consuming, and needs to be done. Um, it needs to have resources devoted to it. It's not going to go on autopilot for sure. Um, but the way to work on that relationship other than in it and on it is to work with other countries in the region to have kind of common approaches and to have priority setting and to have, um, you know, be able to be pushing in in the same direction with regards to overall policy toward the region. But within that, of course, China is very salient. And so you end up kind of having a coherent approach. And I think that's the, the best way to do it. I, you know, I, I must say that a lot of uh, Asia policy that I've seen over the years um, maybe because of our lack of focus on Asia, seems to be driven by insecurities on the part of others in the region. And I think, you know, that is actually been helpful to some extent because it's forced us to focus on Asia to the extent we have. Uh, but it is not, you know, the best way to go about formulating a coherent strategy and then executing it. I think, um, you know, the countries in the region are always worried about the depth of our engagement, the staying power of our engagement, and if we could uh, do something to reassure them on that front, then maybe we could move on to a more kind of intentional and coherent approach well, all across the board. One of the things you do as a deputy director of the China Desk or as director of the China Desk is to kind of balance the different policy interests and goals for the current administration and for the United States in a broader sense. How did you see, I'm just going to kind of tick off some of the different issues, how did you kind of balance those sorts of things? Um, certainly DPRK, uh, Iran, those kind of non-proliferation and security issues always forefront uh, here uh, at, at, at Main State. Um, South China Sea, um, you had mentioned human rights. I just wonder from your time on the desk, and then there's the kind of market access, trade-related issues. And then for the Obama administration, environment became kind of quite high up. Mm. From what you recall at that time, how did you balance those different sort of incoming missives of, oh, this is important. Oh, no, this is really important. That's important. Because as you know, if everything's important, then kind of nothing is important. No, we have that problem definitely in the in the U.S. government. And, um, and this reactive thing that you mentioned, sort of reacting to the latest news story, it sort of exacerbates that problem. But... Uh, leadership is incredibly important. Um, George W. Bush, you know, exercised um, pretty uh, commanding leadership over the U.S.-China relationship after he got sort of into his job for after a period of time. Um, I think, you know, the secretaries of state and national security advisors through the George W. Bush period and on through the Obama period um, had a lens on and a focus on the U.S.-China relationship and had an overarching idea of where they wanted it to go and, and how things were going to be fit in and balanced there. And so we, we took a lot of our uh, you know, guidance and signaling from them. I think one of the things that's always difficult is to, and certainly since you know, the 
basically the last two administrations, the Bush administration, the, the Obama administration, and now the Trump administration, balancing the security, national security objectives and political objectives against the economic objectives. And because the Chinese economy became so intertwined with ours, um, and, you know, Hank Paulson was very instrumental in the Bush two administration in overseeing that U.S.-China relationship and, you know, the, all the issues that at that time, if you remember, the salient issue in the relationship in the U.S.-China relationship was the exchange rate. Um, and so, you know, people forget that and people say we've not made any progress at all on the U.S.-China relationship. Well, we worked on that issue as a as a priority for a number of years and now it's um i mean not everyone thinks it's uh solved but we made a lot of i think it would be hard for anybody to say we didn't make progress on that if issue. anything now right the central chinese central bank keeps right. their value of the renminbi up, up instead of right down, yeah. right so um you know i think personalities are important uh what's going on in the world is important it has been very hard for us to focus on the U.S.-China relationship as a U.S.-China relationship. It te seems to get pulled off into different issues. You mentioned North Korea, Iran, climate change. It kind of becomes a vehicle for whatever the priority of the day is. And, um, you know, it, it, it's been a useful vehicle in many of those priorities, frankly. On North Korea, we've cooperated, you know, not completely to our satisfaction, but certainly uh, to a significant extent uh, with China on working on the North Korea problem. Um, so far, it hasn't devolved to a conflict, so maybe we can count that as a success. We're working toward making it something even more positive than that. We'll see if that works out. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, but uh, certainly, I think even the current administration sees China as indispensable to that effort. Uh, Iran uh, was another thing we worked on as a major priority for a long period of time. Got um, you know quite a bit of Chinese cooperation on that issue. It was not easy, uh, but uh, you know they finally, in the end, did uh, agree to contribute a material, substantive sort of investment in that effort. Uh, climate change, the story there is well known, the sort of 180 degree turn from being at odds at each other's throats to being uh, cooperating on getting the Paris Agreement. So, you know, I think to say that, you know, we haven't gotten any positive responses out of our cooperation from China is just ignoring the context and the priorities that we had at the time and how we worked and what we did. Uh, but, I, but I do think that, um, you know, there is it's possible because of the way we work that the Chinese have had their national goals front and center all the time and they've been working inexorably on them and they've been undeterred despite their cooperation with the international community on other various topics. And so our frustration now comes from, you know, their having sort of focused on that and succeeded in that and uh, us not having maybe paid as much attention to what was going on in that specter in that sphere as we should have. Right. There's always this asymmetry in the U.S. is a global power and we have global interests. Exactly. And China is essentially a regional power with some global interests and they can just concentrate much more at home and much yeah. less on things that they're, they're not interested in. I just wanted to have, uh, before moving on to um, your, your next position, have you talk just for a moment about what it's like to be on the listening end of a demarche from the Chinese embassy here? For those people that haven't experienced it, could you just explain when the Chinese government is unhappy about something, how do they let 
the United States government know that? And what's your role at the State Department for receiving that information and responding? Okay, so here I have to tell a great anecdote um, about DeMarches, because I think this is something very mysterious that most you know, Americans, most listeners probably don't really understand. So uh, before I explain about the DeMarches, um, I was at the National War College for a year, and we did a simulation out at the Air War College in Alabama, and I was the um, Secretary of State playing that role, and my, a couple of my defense colleagues, very talented wonderful guys were playing the national security advisor and the defense secretary and there was some i forget what the scenario was but some conflict broke out somewhere and um and the the guy that was playing the secretary of defense this very tough tank commander um after a year at the national war college uh this was at the end we were doing this role play he um he was in a meeting with us with me and this national security advisor and and uh, the National Security Advisor says, you know, well, what do you think we should do? You know, do we have any military options? And the Secretary of Defense looks at him and says, no, we have to demarch the shit out of them. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was just interesting that by the time we've gone through a lot of different military, um, you know, adventures in the Middle East and elsewhere, this is where <laughs> they've come to is that we've got to get back to uh, demarching the shit out of people. But Demarche doesn't really work that way, James. Uh, Basically, um, you know, it's a very kind of staid, kind of polite conversation. Um, We get instructions from our home government to go in and, you know, tell the Chinese what our position is on X issue or to express our unhappiness about something that they've done. And they get the same kinds of instructions from their government and they're ordered to come in and, and, uh, you know, deliver their message to us. Now, as diplomats, you know, we've all worked in each other's countries. We understand how local systems and politics work. So we know that the person that's delivering the message is the same person that we're going to have, you know, coffee with tomorrow and talk through practical issues around whatever whatever we've got going on. A presidential visit, exactly. a secretary of state visit, exactly. or something that you're going to represent the U.S. position on. Right, some, with some negotiation or something. So... Uh, when that person comes in and delivers their points, you know, my first inclination is to listen very hard because I know this is coming from, you know, an official process in their government so that you can certainly glean information about what they're thinking and about what their um, different pushing and pulling inside their government is is reflected in those comments. Uh, but, you know, in the case of China, their positions tend to be longstanding and very familiar to us. And so most of the time when they came in and delivered points in this formal way, it was not anything that was, um, you know, very surprising or very different. And we would have been expecting it. Or sometimes you would have gotten a message from our embassy in Beijing the day before saying exactly what those same points were. Yeah. And I have to say here, it's important to make this point, I think, that the Chinese process is very disciplined uh, and very complete. Mm -hmm. Uh, It may not always be very flexible and very um, nimble and agile, but it's very disciplined. And so they are very good at delivering their messages across multiple levels in multiple locations. Uh, They kind of blanket the airwaves with their message. And there's no mistaking what the official position is on X issue. Um, I wanted to move to uh, a little bit later when I think in 2015 were you... Deputy Assistant Secretary at that time? 
Yes. So you were Deputy Assistant Secretary for China, Hong Kong, Mongolia. Right. Taiwan. Uh, and Taiwan. Yeah. Um, and I want to say, were you the second woman to hold that job after Susan Shirk? Or was um, there, am I missing someone else? Yeah, I think that's right. So first career person mm-hmm. to have a job, um, second woman to have it. Um, and um, cyber intrusions and dealing with cyber attacks ended up getting a lot of press attention and a lot of concern in the policy community. Absolutely. And um, in preparation for Xi Jinping's visit here to Washington, uh, the U.S. let it be known through, I believe it was the Washington Post, uh, that for the visit to be a success, this issue of cyber hacking would have to be addressed. From what you recall during that time, could you just kind of walk through what thinking was on the U.S. side and then kind of how the Chinese responded and kind of what worked and kind of what didn't? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I came back, you're right, from Central Asia and became uh, the DAS. That was in the, actually the summer of 2014. And I remember walking into my new office and my predecessor, Kin Moy, was there um, on the phone, actually, with the Justice Department in the process of, you know, working out the details of the rollout of the uh, indictment of the five uh, PLA hackers that uh, was announced later that day, I think. And uh, so this was something that was kind of new, actually, in the sort of U.S.-China range of of issues that we had been prioritizing and discussing with them. Of course, we'd always been, you know, complaining, but it was done mainly through either the intelligence channels or the law enforcement channels. And um, we also had fairly decent channels as IP. Right. As IP theft. Mm -hmm. But we um, we also had a lot of good cooperation with China on things like cyber crime, you know, trying to crack down on, uh, you know, child pornography on the Web, you know, selling fake products on the Web, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, this was kind of part and parcel. And we were all learning about the way the Internet was was good and bad. And um and but then you know this series of hacks that started I think in the in the early um, you know basically in the Obama administration uh, became much more prominently reported on became much much bigger uh, more significant and if you remember in 2015 that's when all of the news about the OPM the Office of Personnel Management hack came out and I think that was really a game changer there had been a number of attacks on uh, big databases uh, with a lot of U.S. uh, personnel information. Anthem, I think, had happened um, right around that same time. But the OPM hack really uh, started a kind of a frenzy in Washington. Um, And it's good to remember that a lot of, until that time, as you said, a lot of companies didn't want to disclose that their systems had been hacked because they thought there would be legal liabilities, something might happen to their stock price. And so this was something at the commercial level Companies didn't want to acknowledge, and so it was not kind of out in the open the yeah. way it is kind of today. Absolutely, and OPM also didn't <laughs> acknowledge it when it first happened. So, you know, that was part of the whole uh, backstory and how this got to be so prominent in people's minds, I think. And so um, at the State Department, I remember having daily meetings about the OPM hack, what should we disclose to all the employees, um, what remedies should be taken, what were the possible damages, and, you know, repairing computer systems, it was going to cost, you know, a big chunk of our IT budget to make, you know, fixes for this kind of thing. So, um, 
so when people think of the sort of tensions with China, I mean, there's a lot of other factors that go into it. And a lot of people were uh, all of a sudden aware of the Chinese hacking that maybe hadn't been before, which was another angle to the the whole crescendo of events. But yeah, we um, Xi Jinping was scheduled to come to the United States for his first state visit and, uh, you know, hosted by President Obama. It was a very big deal. These kinds of visits are a very big deal in Chinese in the Chinese uh, system. And why? Uh, well, it's their paramount leader. Uh, the U.S. relationship is the most important relationship for the Chinese. Obviously, um, it's essential that the Chinese leader have a good visit to Washington. It's very important for their sort of domestic uh, media. Um, sort of to to show that you know Xi Jinping came to Washington was what was respected was well treated had a successful visit and the Chinese bureaucracy is nothing if not geared toward making sure that nothing goes wrong for these visits um, and I think you know our system similarly tries to do that but we have different incentives um, you know and maybe not as dire consequences for things going <coughs> wrong as in the Chinese system so you know, we let it be lo- be known, as you said, that, you know, to have a successful visit, this issue of cyber would have to be addressed in a very serious way. We would have to have some kind of an outcome that showed that we were making progress. And up to that point, the Chinese had just not been interested at all in having a serious conversation about it. And so I think, um, you know, that is a pattern that we see in dealing with China. We have concerns um, they probably see that we have a long list of concerns and they don't know which one we're actually most focused on until we make a show of it. And then when we do, they generally do try to pay attention because, like I said, they want, you know, the relationship is important and they want to have a productive and constructive interaction generally. How did it end up? How did the Chinese uh offer to address some of our concerns on cyber hacking? The main uh you know bone of contention we had with the chinese was that uh they were doing this hacking it was state sponsored clearly um and that they were then having the state sponsored actors were turning over this um you know treasure trove of information that they either stole or exfiltrated or whatever they did to commercial entities to try to sort of build up their competitiveness against against U.S. rivals and using our own information in that. And that was something that, um, although some other countries in the world have been known to do similar things, um, it was, you know, basically um, could not be tolerated in an environment where you want to have an open market-based competitive uh, global economic system and obviously is just anyway illegal and um, immoral and so I think uh, that was the main thing that we were going after was you can't you know we understand there are intelligence agencies that are going to do what they're going to do and try to get information about each other and we understand that there are criminal hackers out there that are going to try to steal people's money but you can't have the state you know using its tools to uh, hack companies and then turn that over to essentially the criminals or the companies that are going to be competing. So that was what we were going after. And I think, um, you know, it's a very difficult thing to try to negotiate. The Chinese 
said immediately that they do not do that and that they do not condone that and that they are happy to sign an agreement to that effect. But of course, the details of signing that agreement are very tricky. Um, and there's all kinds of things that, um, you know, definitional and other problems with it that, um, that are still plaguing us to this day, frankly. But we did manage to get an agreement and we did see a diminution in hacking from China after the agreement. Uh, anything else from Xi Jinping's visit that you recollect as being particularly noteworthy or anything that you found of interest as someone who's spent a fair amount of time working on China? Well, you know, the one thing I would say, and this is more general than tied to that specific visit, but since I did a lot of these leadership visits um, that we found was very useful because the Chinese system uh, values so much the symbolic accomplishment of these visits and because it's so important for it to go well it gives us quite a bit of leverage um, and the visits are themselves very important because communication at the top level of leadership for China and the United States is is crucial I think in in that our relations are so complex and it requires in both bureaucracies clear leadership from the very top to set the right tone and make it a constructive relationship but um, I think, you know, we had uh, a habit when I was uh, working on this in the Obama administration and in the George W. Bush administration of, of using these visits to try to get a series of outcomes in different priority areas. And, um, you know, people now say, oh, we didn't ever get very much or we didn't, you know, get the right things or we weren't focused on some technology that's only emerged in the last two years. But, um, you know, at the time, for the things we were working on, I think that we were able to get quite a bit of mileage out of those uh, visits. And, uh, you know, contrary to the popular narrative now, it's not that the Chinese in every case didn't follow through on the things that they promised. I mean, we had a very rigorous system of following up on those and holding their feet to the fire and making sure they did. The one area I will say that I think was constantly a disappointment um, was the economic uh, and trade negotiations in the run-up to these visits. And, um, you know, it was difficult to make headway because we were constantly responding to various U.S. interest groups coming up with their uh, latest and greatest problem that they were encountering in China, and there was no real strategic focus on what we should be prioritizing and what we should be demanding and asking for. I will say at the same time that we were uh, working on trade and uh, commercial issues, we were also negotiating this bilateral investment treaty text with the Chinese. And in that negotiation, um, according to the people who were involved in it and, in, and to some of the discussions I was privy to, we were making quite a lot of headway. But all of that work was not ever consummated and we never got anything from it because we never finished or or converted it in any way during one of these visits into meaningful kind of commitments from the Chinese. So that was unfortunate. It's interesting on that. Yeah, the, I remember the Xi Jinping came for the nuclear security summit <clears throat> here and to Washington, and he was supposed to bring with him an updated negative list as part of the bilateral investment negotiations. And the negotiators got here, and the whole team got here, and essentially, the Chinese said, the dog ate our homework. That is, gee, we, we couldn't kind of bring consensus on our side to give you an updated negative list. 
And uh, at least in the meetings that I was in with the, on the trade side, some senior folks, the question was, well, wh what happened? Like you said in your system, you needed to have a presidential visit to force decisions among the interagency. We waited some time for you to pull this together and show up with Xi Jinping. And they just said, yeah, there just wasn't enough consensus to, to move forward. So uh, I, I think uh, you're right to point out the ability of a presidential visit to bring um, Chinese policies more in line with what the U.S. would like or to kind of harmonize uh, global uh, issues in a way that, that benefits the United States. That said, it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve all problems Absolutely. and you can't address everything uh, with, with all those. Um, speaking of presidents, I wanted to switch to, uh, you had mentioned presidential transitions and that you were at uh, the State Department for two of them. Uh, I guess I was in policy planning for the uh, Bush to Obama mm -hmm. time. Right. Could you just talk for people who want to know what happens and what doesn't happen in a presidential transition? What's it like at the State Department? What's the physical setup and what's the role of the kind of career staff in bringing in the new team to uh, explain what U.S. policy has been and then give policy options for them moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably safe to say that it's different in every case. Um, and efforts have been made to try to standardize and make it more regular. Um, I think the George W. Bush team made a big effort in that department. And I think um, actually the Clinton administration before them did, did some work on that as well. Um, but, you know, what's what what I saw happen twice and what is supposed to happen is that a transition team comes in to the State Department appointed by the, you know, administration's transition team. Um, that is uh, the president's elect. Exactly. People they, political people, appointees they send. Usually to. from the campaign or having some connection with the campaign, but who also have had some foreign policy background and experience. Um, and and sometimes if the campaign is really well organized, they already know who some of the incoming officials are that they're going to want to appoint. So they, they, they name those people. That did not happen in the last um, transition, but I, I've seen that happen in a number of others. And it, and it um, seems to be a fairly standard way of doing it. Uh, they occupy rooms and offices on the first floor of the State Department. They ask, they send up, you know, requests for information. We prepare briefing books on all the issues that we think they need to know about. Uh, and it's kind of an information exchange, certainly from the period between the election uh, and the inauguration. You know, we're, we're sort of informing what are all the issues, what has been done on them, what's the history. Um, and we don't get a lot of feedback generally on, you know, what the what the new approach, if anything, is going to be. But I think that makes sense because you can't have, you know, more than one president at a time. And um, in the case of George W. Bush, you know, well, in that case, we were dealing with the financial crisis. So that was pretty exceptional. But um, in general, um, you know, there's there's pride of place given to the outgoing administration's continuation of their policies. But, you know, of course, all the foreign counterparts know that that person's a lame duck and so they're waiting kind of to see and they're not making a lot of commitment so it's a kind of a tricky time to be a diplomat you're you're trying to finish up whatever things that you've been you know had ongoing that are projects uh, with foreign countries or in various areas uh, but you know it's hard sometimes to get the foreign counterparts to you know, step up and give you the due attention I guess that I, I want to move to your time as um 
assistant secretary. So Danny Russell, who was the career assistant secretary, retired or was moving towards mm-hmm. retirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were tapped as the deputy assistant secretary to be the acting assistant secretary, so covering all of East Asia. So uh, how was it to go from kind of China to the whole region? Mm. Uh, there's a lot more countries, allies, very mm-hmm. different relationships that you have. How did you find that kind of broadening experience, but also an inbox that's just going to be a lot deeper? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was it was great, actually. I loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, I worked my entire career on, you know, I would say countries where the governments in the United States have not always had a completely smooth relationship. And so to go from those kinds of, you know, challenges and also dealing with countries that have a lot in a lot of times very stilted forms of and very formal sort of communication mechanisms with partner governments um, to go to Australia and just, you know, be able to talk, you know, like, you know, completely family conversation. It's a it's a different uh, it's a different feeling. It's a different level of honesty. And um, and it's in a lot of ways, it's just a lot more productive. There's so many things that you can just move right through and don't not spend time on because there's so many shared um, spaces that we have. And so, you know, that was um, great. Um, working on Japan was wonderful. Um, I really felt that, you know, having uh, sort of seen Japan always being an EAP, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, one of the sort of major relationships. It defines a lot of what we do. Our usually assistant secretary and principal deputy are are from the Japan kind of background, and so you know, I've learned a lot from those people over the years, and come to really appreciate Japan and and talk to them a lot. But you know, really being able to go and and sort of have detailed deep conversations with them about the region and and I was really um found them to be very strategic very practical and realistic and um really enjoyed working on the whole Indo-Pacific strategy with them which I still to this day think is the right policy for the U.S. government to have in the region and um to explain try to that what makes you say that um well I think that the only you know Asia is the most important region for the future of us and the rest of the world. And uh, we're going to need to work with the other countries in the region to have a, a, a sort of a bigger say in how it develops. Uh, I don't think this bilateral approach is is bearing the kind of fruit that we want to see it bear. And so working with all of the potential partners in the region, including China, but um, to focus on this kind of free and open, values-based and rules-based system is what we need to be doing. And to be more creative and flexible about the partner arrangements, um, about how we coordinate, and to b- build up the regional architecture so that it can do a lot of this stuff automatically for us, which it's not doing, which is why we're devolving into you know, alternate groupings, which, frankly, I'm not sure we have the... Um, 
sort of attention span and resources to have a proliferation of different architectures in East Asia. And I don't think it's going to serve the region well. And by architectures, you're meaning different groups of uh, countries that work on different issues, depending on what the issue is, those different groups kind of come together. Right. I'm I'm for informal groupings. I'm for minilaterals and but I'm not for more formal architecture. I think we need to focus on the East Asia Summit and, and the ASEAN-centered architecture and bringing in the Indian, Indian Ocean countries into that architecture and uh, focus uh, very uh, singularly on making that architecture work and building it up and strengthening it. I think we're getting kind of a little bit... Uh, too diffuse in our focus on that and it's it's not having salutary effects on the architecture that exists uh, one of the things that the incoming administration focused on was North Korea and you were the acting assistant secretary kind of during that time when it was particularly intense focus on North Korea's behavior uh, could you talk a little bit about kind of your role and how, how what, what you did as, a, as the kind of senior advisor? I would say the new administration didn't have a lot of um, career people or political appointees in place, and you were one of the few people who was turned to kind of regularly on uh, security issues on East Asia because of the North Korea problem. Could you just kind of talk a little bit about yeah, I, I actually think North Korea is um, one of the most fascinating uh, foreign policy stories in, in this administration or in any administration. Frankly, I started working on North Korea in 1997 when I was on the Korea desk, and we worked on the agreed framework. Uh, then I worked on the six-party talks when I was in the embassy in Beijing uh, in the mid-2000s. Uh, you know, then under Obama, of course, um, you know, we we worked a little bit on North Korea, but mostly we tried to, you know, contain it and um, keep it <laughs> keep it from from yeah doing going in a worse direction. Uh, but I I think um, people forget that at the beginning of the Trump administration in the National Security Council, Mike Flynn and Katie McFarland. Um, we're told because North Korea was the most urgent national security threat to start a process and come up with a strategy and they did that in a very orderly way using people who were in positions um, that had been working on this issue and had a very good process that they went through uh, came up with a strategy this was the first and last time I saw that happen in this administration on my, on issues I worked on, but this one was was done in the way that would be familiar to people having worked in uh, government on foreign policy issues. And um, I think you know they came up with this global maximum pressure strategy. Um, they you know put together a coalition and started executing against it soon after both of them were gone but the document remained and the strategy remained and people there was a consensus around that document and so people continued to implement it um, and uh, you know there were a lot of other things going on in the administration at that time but the, but but because it had been done in that way it was it was on autopilot basically and people you know at the State Department I mean Rex Tillerson 
you know, mounted a very effective campaign to get diplomatic partners around the world to contribute to that effort, et cetera. I mean, the, the rest of it is, is well known, but I think, um, you know, seeing that there was a lot more space to go into and get other countries to do more to pressure North Korea was really, was really key to where we are today. Um, you know, our team did incredible work on traveling around the world to Africa and other places, um, convening a fora to make countries see that it was in their interest to join with us in this, et cetera. And then, of course, we were helped by Kim Jong-un, who kept firing off rockets and making audacious threats. So it all did kind of come together. Um, and, um, and now, you know, there's an opportunity to turn it around. So we'll see. I'm like I said, I'm hopeful. Um, one of the that was one of the topics at uh, the two presidents meeting at Mar-a-Lago in Florida was North Korea, and certainly for the new Trump administration, this was probably their top kind of foreign policy priority and maybe top priority with China, uh, w- along with market access and trade imbalances. Um, you were in Florida for that summit. Could you just talk a little bit about? the preparation for it, how it went, uh, how the chocolate cake was. <laughs> the chocolate cake was unbelievable. Um, but yeah, no, it is it is uh, hard to remember back to that period in the administration, but the preparation and all of the focus for the meeting was on uh, two issues, basically, the North Korea issue and the trade issues. Um, trade it, deficit, really. Was it in April? Is that April, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, 2017. 17, yeah. So, uh, you know, the two presidents had a lot of one-on-one time at Mar-a-Lago. It wasn't planned that way initially, but because uh, the Trump family was there, Xi Jinping had his spouse with him, it was in this kind of more relaxed um, venue at Mar-a-Lago. And so things led to things, and they started off with a kind of a tea with the families, and then they just kind of never broke. And kept going on on conversations and we know that you know a lot of the conversation between the two presidents one-on-one was about North Korea Um, because you know it was April 2017 I mean the president probably knew something about North Korea but he he hadn't gotten a lot of I mean he was it was a few months into the administration so there was a lot going on and um, so, so basically, they, you know, he used this meeting, I think, as a way of, you know, sounding out, sound, a sounding board for the kinds of things he thought about North Korea, what he wanted to do, et cetera. And he used, you know, the meeting with Xi Jinping to do a lot of that. Um, now, we can p- probably, you know, predict and assume what the Chinese side of the story would have been and talking through all of the various efforts been made over the years that they were playing up their involvement in those etc but and talking about what the Chinese interest is what the picture in Northeast Asia looks like I mean probably a lot of conversation not all of it maybe would have been what uh, we would have supplied as talking points for the president but certainly an educational conversation for him and then of course let's not forget I mean uh, apropos of our comment that it's very hard for the U.S. to maintain focus on Asia. In the middle of dinner, uh, there was the shooting of the missiles into the Syrian um, 
sort of uh, weapons depot, uh, which kind of took some of the focus of the event off U.S.-China relations and put it back on what was happening in the Middle East. So, you know, the the trade discussion at that meeting was the next day after a lot of these one-on-one conversations had taken place, and then some of these conversations continued the next day. But the trade meeting was um, was a much larger meeting and was you know, not as lengthy and had the function, I would say, of airing grievances, but not really getting to any kind of how are we going to make progress on this. So, I mean, that was the end of the first meeting. And they've had several meetings since where, um, you know, the, the evolution of the North Korea issue is, I think, very important for thinking about where we are with China now. Uh, stepping back, um, how would you say Mar-a-Lago compares with, say, when Xi Jinping came here in 2015? Or I mean, can you talk a little bit about the informal nature of having something at a resort uh, and what the benefits are of that or not? Or how does it compare to kind of other visits? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, for a U.S. leader, an offer of, a, of an informal kind of summit is usually a very attractive show of respect, very much an honor. But in the Chinese system, it doesn't always come off that same way. And Chinese leaders, in the Chinese system at least, maybe not Chinese leaders, because I remember Deng Xiaoping's visit to the ranch, and he, he loved it. But the system wants to organize an official state visit with all of the pomp and circumstance and respect being shown to the paramount leader. So it's hard to get that agreement to have the informal summit. But once you get there, I think um, it does promote a kind of more personal connection between the two top leaders, which is important. And so my guess is Chinese leaders do recognize that, even though their system wants them to to do something else. Um, I think that's really important because, as I said earlier, I mean, the, the, the tone and the amount of constructive activity you're going to get out of your system below you is going to be determined by how you, you know, set that tone and, and what kind of instructions you project about how you want this relationship to be run. And so having the two leaders, you know, be seen to be personally engaged is almost as important <laughs> as that they are engaged. Um I think, you know, I and remember... Do you think it helps, sorry, to get past mm-hmm. the talking points a little bit? For, I think on the U.S. side it does, or do you think on the... But do you think on the Chinese side they 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 double down on their talking points because they're in an uncomfortable ranch setting or in a less than formalized yeah. White House meeting room? Well, one thing that I think that people don't appreciate is how high level the conversation is at the leader's level. I mean... You know, even if the leaders are very educated and steeped in the detailed nuances of particular policy issues, that when they meet and talk, it's it's very strategic kinds of conversations. You know, how do we see the Middle East developing over the next 50 years? You know, what are we going to do about the Millennium Development Goals and what's happening with Africa? Um, you know, climate change, you know, how are we going to you know, get countries on board to take serious steps. It's it's a very kind of high-level conversation generally, and there may be things in particular that they have to discuss, but those are not the main feature of the conversation. And so having that kind of strategic understanding, I know that um, most 
uh, U.S. leaders have wanted to have that conversation with the Chinese leaders. And so um, th that's the kind of conversation that the Chinese leaders are prepared for. And I've not seen Chinese leaders speak in great detail on some of their, you know, policy issues. And I think that sometimes is frustrating to our side. Um, but, you know, I think these informal discussion conversations, you can usually somehow project a little bit what your core concerns are. And I think that's important for both sides to know. Um, when you were tapped to be the acting assistant secretary, uh, I, I've known a lot of deputies and secretaries who've worked in EAP covering China. Uh, I would say you were just incredibly effective at both DAS, but also as the acting assistant secretary, and, and not a lot of people, frankly, could make that move from mm -hmm. dealing with one country, okay, Mongolia, Taiwan, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, Hong yeah. Kong, dealing with largely one country mm -hmm. to a region that's quite complex uh, and um, can be prickly. Uh, uh, I think Japanese diplomats are amazing. They can also be uh, mm. not, not always easy to get along with, as any country can be. You know, we, we have our issues even with our allies. Uh, Koreans and, and uh, Singaporeans and all, all the different EAP countries right. all have their kind of quirks. And so it's not a kind of easy step to go from dealing with kind of one major country to a bunch of different allies. So I think you, you, you really did uh, uh, it's, it's unusual job to be able to step in and do that. You, uh, preside, you, you presided over a time in which we were doing a fair amount with East Asia. Um, there was also a fair amount of political rancor kind of here in Washington. And I just wanted to ask, at a personal level, you were kind of singled out in not a particularly positive way by some in the White House for um, obstructing the administration's goals or being seen as obstructing the administration's goals. And how did you deal with that level of personal attack? And, and what I'm talking about is uh, Steve Bannon, in particular, mm. according to news reports, seemed to be excited that you would not be given the job of EAP Assistant Secretary on a permanent basis. How did you deal with that at a personal level of being kind of so named as a mm. career person? We're kind of not used to that unless you're the spokesman and then, yes, your name is kind of out there. Uh, but but how did that, how, how, do you, how do you think about those sorts of mm. things as, as a career person? Well, um, as a career person, I am intensely not political. So, you know, you know when you're working in Washington, and I spent 18 out of my 28 years in the field, so I don't consider myself that much of a Washington insider, but I do know enough about Washington to know that you basically need to be ready to be thrown under the bus at any moment. And I think that's just a very healthy attitude to have. You better have your plan B and your plan C. And it's not, you know, personal. Um, I have a different mission set in my own view. Um, my mission set is to fulfill U.S. interests in foreign policy, to uh, make sure that U.S. influence in the world is preserved, and to make sure that we're able to continue to work with allies and partners on the challenges that will face this administration, the next administration, and the one after that. And so um, I don't necessarily take it personally. Steve Bannon, you know, I he had a very different role. Um, you know, he's responsible, presumably, for getting President Trump reelected. And, um, you know, he was crafting a strategy, presumably, that he thought 
was going to be successful in that and using whatever tools he could use and wasn't thinking that much about in my view you know u.s influence for the millennium (laughs) so um we kind of had very different you know goals and purposes and you know he has a lot more uh tools at his disposal working out of the white house and with the presidency and you know media etc um and so you know if that's the way they chose to play it then i have to be ready to be thrown under the bus thank you i I just wanted to end you've you've dealt with the chinese in a lot of different spheres to kind of ask kind of what works and what doesn't in a in a broad sense um sometimes we're very public with what we say about china sometimes kind of private communications seem to be favored um sometimes the chinese uh, government seems to want to work within the international system sometimes it seems like they want to work outside of it or set up other institutions uh, could you just kind of think about or distill your uh, 28 years of foreign <laughs> service time for one minute of a pithy <laughs> close you know can, can you kind of think about what what gets the Chinese bureaucracy to move in a way that uh, is advantageous to the U.S. position, and presumably we also feel for the kind of global system, in a way that's kind of helpful? Actually, that um, <clears throat> getting the Chinese to see themselves as being responsible for the evolution of the international system, for the evolution of prosperity and peace and stability in their region and around the world is going to be the key. Uh, They're very fixated on themselves. And, you know, this is an era of selfish countries. But I do not believe that globalization is going to be reversed. I think globalization is um, not only, you know, not stoppable, but it's also the most sort of beneficial kind of uh, future orientation for the continued prosperity of the planet. And so I think we need to think about that. We're not really set up in our current international system to make that work smoothly and well. We have to figure out, I think, you know, there's been a lot of good writing on this. Richard Haas has this concept of sovereign responsibility, and I think that's very interesting. I think still Robert Zellick's uh, responsible stakeholder idea was was the kind of thing um, that we need to think harder about how to operationalize that. And getting the Chinese involved in an effort to do that, I think, is crucial. We're probably already too late. But, you know, we should be starting that um, in spades now. And I think they'd be actually receptive to it because they don't want to be seen as a pariah. They don't want to be seen as irresponsible. And, um, and, and I think the Chinese people, at the end of the day, would not want to have their government be seen as a pariah or irresponsible. And they'll have to be responsive to that at some point. But you've got to set up the, the path and the structures and the international... Um, kind of common purpose and values and pressure to do that. Susan Thornton, so great to see you. Thanks so much for taking time. You're welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. Susan Thornton, speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.